0: Welcome to Because It Is, a conversation about faith, justice, and other things that matter. This podcast is hosted by Second Baptist Downtown in Little Rock, Arkansas. Second Baptist is a vibrant, historic downtown congregation whose faith compels us to seek justice, care for the oppressed, and pattern our lives after the way of Jesus. We are a unique Baptist church that prioritizes diversity and inclusion for all. In this episode, we talk with Amanda Tyler, the Executive Director of the Baptist Joint Committee about Christian nationalism. We take a look at the various forms of Christian nationalism and the threat it poses to religious liberty and even democracy itself. We hope you'll listen and consider signing the Christians Against Christian Nationalism Statement.
1: Hi everybody, welcome to this episode of Because It Is. I'm delighted to welcome my friend Amanda Tyler to the podcast today. Second Baptist, um, as a Baptist church, has long believed in religious freedom for everyone and uh, the tool to achieve that, the separation of church and state. And because of those beliefs, we've been a long partner with the Baptist Joint Committee, which is currently led by Amanda Tyler. Uh, And so we're here today to talk about Christian nationalism, what it is, the dangers and threats therein, and what we might do about it. Uh, So, Amanda, welcome to the podcast. We're honored to have you today and more honored uh, to join you in this work.
2: Oh, thank you, Preston. I'm delighted to to be here with you for this conversation.
1: Yeah. Uh, Before we get into Christian nationalism, uh, to give everyone some context, would you mind sharing what the Baptist Joint Committee does on a day-to-day basis?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty, or we go by BJC for short, uh, Mm -hmm. we are an education and advocacy group dedicated to protecting everyone's religious freedom. Mm -hmm. And we do that through legal and legislative advocacy that we coordinate from our headquarters on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., And we also help sponsor and put on educational programming to help Baptists and others understand the importance of religious freedom for all and how we protect that in our American constitutional system. And we also work on mobilizing activities, giving resources and information to individuals who are interested in advocating for religious freedom in their communities as well. And it's that last piece of our work, the mobilization work, where we've been most focused on in leading what we call Christians against Christian nationalism.
1: Mm. Well, thank you for that work. Uh, It was important when it was first dreamed up and has only become all the more important as each day has gone by. Um, I wonder, to begin with today, if we might start with a working definition of what Christian nationalism is. I'm I'm not sure many people uh, understand what we mean when we say Christian nationalism, so help define that for us.
2: Absolutely. I think that is always the best place to start so that we are working from a common vocabulary. Mm -hmm. When I say Christian nationalism, I mean a political ideology and cultural framework that seeks to merge the identities of Christian and American. Mm -hmm. In other words, it says to be a real American in air quotes um, that your listeners can't see right now. Um, To be a real American, one must be a Christian or vice versa, only real Christians live in America. And this ideology of Christian nationalism relies heavily on a mythological founding, a mythological history of the United States as being founded as a Christian nation. Mm
0: -hmm. And
2: I mean, I think that requires some definition too. When we talk about the United States or people who are... Or proponents of Christian nationalism are talking about the United States as a Christian nation. They're not talking about it in any kind of demographic sense. They're not saying, you know, a majority of Americans identify as Christian. They're saying that the country itself was founded by Christians in order to privilege a Christian majority. Um, Many people who espouse uh, heavily to Christian nationalism ideology think that the founding documents, for example, were divinely inspired or that Christianity should be promoted through our laws and policies. So all of these components go into this larger ideology of Christian nationalism.
1: Yeah, thanks for that. I think when some people hear those terms, they think that we're suggesting that people can't be patriotic And and I wonder how, in your mind, you differentiate between Christian nationalism and what I would call a healthy patriotism. Can you tease that out for us?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's important, you know, it's not Christian patriotism, it's Christian nationalism. And so patriotism, I define as a love of country. And there's so many different ways to show our love of country. You know, some of them are saying the Pledge of Allegiance or putting a flag outside of your house or protesting in the streets. You know, these are different ways to show your patriotic spirit. Nationalism, on the other hand, is an allegiance to country that puts that allegiance above everything else, including our theological beliefs. And so a way to think about when patriotism might cross the line into nationalism, Mm -hmm. you know, if your patriotism requires you to sacrifice some of your theological convictions, then it ceased to be patriotism and it has become nationalism. Right. Um,
1: oftentimes you see an extra adjective in this phrase, white Christian nationalism. Uh, And oftentimes when I talk about Christian nationalism, I do include white Christian national, I I do include the word white in that phrase. Um, I wonder how you frame the racial component to Christian nationalism.
2: You know, I think I would say the vast majority of Christian nationalism in the American context is indeed white Christian nationalism. And at the project that BJC coordinates, Christians Against Christian Nationalism, we talk about it in this way that Christian nationalism often overlaps with and provides cover for white supremacy and racial subjugation. Mm. And why is that? And I, first, I think it goes back to that history that we're talking about. You know, right. you cannot understand the history of the United States without understanding a history of racial subjugation, of white supremacy of slavery, of stealing of land from indigenous people, you know, all of this goes into the founding of the United States. And so if you think that God's providential hand was at work in that founding of the United States, if you think that God meant to privilege Christianity in in the forming of the country and in, in our present and in our future, and don't take into account that racial history, that history of, of, racial terror and slavery, then you are just pasting over. You're providing cover for white supremacy in that way. And the language of white Christian nationalism is particularly, I think, dangerous because it is coded racism. Right. A lot of cultures and a lot of communities, it is no longer socially acceptable to be outwardly racist, right? To use the, the hateful language of the past, that that is has gone undercover. And instead, people use language of Christian nationalism in some circles that sends a message of uh, this, this insider group, which some sociologists who study this, uh, Samuel Perry and Andrew Whitehead, talk about an ethno-nationalism, mm. ethno-national identity, um, that that includes this, you know, overarching Christian religion in some way uh, that sends a signal of belonging that that is for white Christians and no one else, but -hmm. doesn't explicitly use some of the racist language um, that uh, has been banished from polite conversation.
1: Yeah. I I saw this so very clearly on January 6th, uh, you know, two years ago, where the symbols of the Confederacy, our own national flag, and Christian symbols—crosses—all seem to coexist in some toxic mi- mixture of uh, racism, nationalism, and some some expression of the Christian faith. And I find that so very concerning. But the the fluidity of those symbols was on display on January sixth. It seemed to me, and and how. Uh, all of these ways of seeing our country and seeing ourselves uh, flowed in and informed each other. Right? Exactly,
2: absolutely. And and I know we'll talk more about January 6th and how Christian nationalism uh, played a role there, but just the fluidity of the symbols, I, I just wanna dwell on that for a minute. One, one example of the coded nature of Christian nationalism and the language that goes with it. You know, one uh, phrase that is often used for, uh, in connection with Christian nationalism is, in God we trust, Mm -hmm. right? This is a national motto of the United States. It's been a national motto since the 1950s. Of course, it's on currency, Um, but there has been a modern push to put those words in more public places. For instance, a lot of state legislatures have considered bills that require the posting of in God we trust in every public school School in the state, um, right. and the the bill language in those for those bills talks about you know that this is important to our country's character, to our country's values. You know, again, sending this message to our youngest citizens. By the way, um, that to be fully American, to fully belong, then you trust in God in some cultural framework sort of way. Okay, mm-hmm. so so take you know taking. You know, as I say that in God, we trust is an example of Christian nationalism language Uh, in, you know, neighboring state of Mississippi a few years ago, they voted to remove the Confederate battle flag off the state flag of the state of Mississippi. But Mm -hmm. the legislature there required the voters, if they were going to remove it to replace the Confederate battle flag with in God, we trust. So here's an example of using Christian nationalism language as a direct replacement for a racist symbol. And mm-hmm. these these there's a fluidity to these symbols that I think um, sends the signal, sends a coded signal of white Christian nationalism, of white supremacy that is linked, really, unfortunately, with the Christian label.
0: Right.
1: Uh, this is sort of a silly question after what we've been talking about, but what is it that concerns you most about Christian nationalism?
2: Well, there's a lot that concerns me about Christian nationalism. I I think the most, the most, um, you know, I I think I'm going to have to give you more than one answer, Preston, I think, but I think the, the, the most concerning to me is the, is the direct violence. Mm-hmm. And we saw it again recently in Buffalo, in right. uh, the murder of 10 people in a supermarket um, by a white supremacist. Someone who interestingly, you know, disclaimed Christianity said, you know, I'm not a Christian, but he used the language of Christian nationalism in his long mm-hmm. manifesto about why he was doing this. And this is just the latest example of how Christian nationalism in the hands of a violent extremist can turn deadly. We saw it at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh in 2018. We saw it at Mother Emmanuel AME Church in right. 2015. Um, but we see we saw it in El Paso. You know, we've seen it in a lot of different communities um, where uh, Christian nationalism plus guns has resulted. In, in death and in terror. And we also saw it at the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021. And there we saw not only violence, incredible, awful violence that was inflicted against Capitol Police and other uh, police members who were there. You know, I we, we learned about violence that was narrowly averted that could have been directed against members of Congress and, and other government officials. Um, but we also had violence to democracy itself. Mm-hmm. And I think that brings me to, to what else you know is at the top of my list of, of what's concerning about Christian nationalism. And that is the clear and present danger to our democratic system itself. And we've seen Christian nationalism be used um, by the insurrectionists on January 6th, but in by those who are continuing uh, to further voter suppression efforts in communities across the country that uh, this ideology is mixing with these other political motivations in ways that really threatened the, the basis of our constitutional democracy. Um, and then if I can just continue to add to the list, I mean, I think Please. these are the most the, the um, you know largest dangers, but Christian nationalism is so pervasive. And I talk about it in the work that we do at BJC as the single biggest threat to religious freedom for all today. Mm-hmm. Because what Christian nationalism does is it undercuts those foundational values of religious freedom. The idea that our belonging in American society is not. Premised on whether we're religious or not, or what religion we claim. Rather, we are all equal as American citizens, Mm -hmm. and um, that that religion does not come into play there. And that foundational value is directly challenged by Christian nationalism. And we see it play out in a number of different controversies that, uh, you know, are fortunately not deadly. Um, but are incredibly violent to our our equality as Americans and to our religious freedom.
1: Yeah, you know I often think um, about the Sermon on the Mount and how Jesus links uh, violent actions with violent language. Right? Like um, you've heard it say, "Don't murder," but I say, anyone who says "Raka" to your brother, you know, called someone a fool. You're you're on the path to murder already. And in our national discourse, when we degrade immigrants as something less than Americans, uh, people of color, whatever color they might be, um, uh, you know, as if white isn't a color um, that is paving the way for violence. When we say that America is a Christian nation, what does it mean for mosques and synagogues around this country? Uh, What does it mean for people of no faith around this country? So I'd spend a lot of time thinking about the language we're using because that, if I'm hearing Jesus correctly, is paving the way for our actions, good or bad. And so to your point, when we hear language about immigrants, non-Christian people, people of color that is laden with disdain or... Uh, a dehumanizing lesser than, it seems like violence is the only logical outcome of that type of worldview and speech, and it is gravely concerning.
2: Yeah, and and I I share those concerns. And I think one thing we need to watch out for, you know, in, in the immediate aftermath of January 6th, we had people from across the political spectrum who were distancing themselves from the acts of the insurrectionists. Right. We saw that shift, you know, in the months that followed and right. uh, some amnesia about the terror of that day and, and how difficult that was. But even those who have continued to be concerned about Christian nationalism on January 6th have tried to limit Christian nationalism to the most extreme examples. Right, And I think we do that at our extreme peril because These more mundane examples of Christian nationalism, the posting of In God We Trust in public school classrooms or uh, efforts to require or encourage Bible literacy classes in public schools or uh, trying to return government sponsored prayer into public schools, which is Mm a case before the Supreme Court this very term, you know, these examples, again, of having government sponsorship of Christianity in a way that would create a second-class faith system in this country, these are acts of violence as well. And if we don't address those, if we don't understand those as on the same continuum of some of these more extreme examples, then we're never going to get to the root problem and we're going to only end up with more violence.
1: Yeah. So, so let's, let's talk about those more subtle forms then. Um, I, I think some people look at In God We Trust on our coinage uh, school prayer as rather benign and harmless things. Um, but it seems to me that Christian nationalism distorts both the Christian faith and our, our democratic ideals. Can you speak to to that from from both angles? How Christian nationalism is a danger to both faith and state?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I'll take, um, I guess, I'll take the government sponsored prayer example as mm-hmm. as an example to talk about how what this looks like if in in Christian nationalism terms. You know, I think from the from the public standpoint, from our uh, you know multiracial multi-ethnic, multi-religious society standpoint, you know, what has allowed that diversity to flourish has been a promise that the government wouldn't take sides when it comes to religion, and that that has worked very well for our system um, to, again, create equal citizenship for people without regard to religious belief. Now, if we have government-sponsored prayer in public Mm -hmm. schools, and I want to be very careful with my language here, you know, we definitely have prayer in public schools. As my predecessor, James Dunn, liked to say, as long as there are math tests, there's going to be prayer in public schools. Absolutely. We have all kinds of private expression by students and by teachers. And and by private, I don't just mean silent. I mean, ways in which the government itself is not promoting or sponsoring the prayer. And that's a good thing. We, we think that it's, it's an important part of religious freedom that people feel free to, to exercise their religion, even when they are in, in public spaces, including in public schools, that is all good. Right. Um, but when it comes uh, to the government sponsorship of prayer, then we're really hurting our, our polity, our, our diversity, the, the, um, promise of religious freedom, on the on the faith side, you know why why don't we want government? Why why is Baptist Preston? Do we not want, you know, our local public school leading kids in prayer? Well, there are all kinds of theological reasons that we think faith should be freely chosen and and not uh, done with the power and the privilege of, and the authority of those um, in charge, which for public school students is definitely their teacher or their principal or any other government agent that is there to, um, to lead them in prayer. So there are good theological reasons not to do that. Um, They're not trained theologically, right. We don't, trust our, our public school teachers. We think they're wonderful at public school education. We don't think they're great at religious education. We have religious organizations who, um, we trust to do that. And we think that parents, um, should be able to send their kids to public school without worrying that the state is going to be interfering in their own religious instruction or their choices not to have religious instruction. And so, you know, and, and, the other piece, whether it's government sponsored prayer or government sponsored religious monuments or um, you know, other kinds of government prayer like at city council meetings or other examples of things, whether they're ruled to be constitutional or not, we think that government is uniquely ill-equipped to be speaking to religious matters, that in the hands of of the government, that our religion is gonna be weakened. It's going to be distorted. We're gonna get away from the basis of our faith. And so Christian nationalism, this merging of our identities of uh, Christian and American, this merger of the institutions of religion and government or church and state, um, these are all things that would pose a danger to our faith, to our witness, to, you know, what we as religious people bring um, to the society at large. And it's important that government not take that over.
1: Yeah. You know, on my side of stained glass windows, I spend a lot of time thinking about what Christian nationalism does to faith. And, um, recently I had an idea that, um, Christian nationalism is easier to spot for some people in other contexts than it is in our own. And I thought about, you know, the Russian Orthodox Church because of its conflation with, uh, you know, the, the nation state of Russia, how they have to whatever degree or another have sanctioned uh, Putin's war in Ukraine uh, because the gospel interests and Russia's interests are so intertwined in that context. And so I've tried to use that as a tool to show people uh, how insidious that conflation is. When, when the interests of our country and the ideals of our faith become so intertwined, we can't differentiate between the two. Um, it's a time to question who who we're following at that point, right?
2: Absolutely. We talk about it in the Christians Against Christian Nationals and statement as a conflation of religious and political leadership or authority, and that that can very quickly lead also to idolatry when we conflate or confuse religious and political authority in that way. And it also strikes me, you know, particularly for the Christian perspective, how at odds the teaching of Jesus are with the power of the state. I mean, I guess most obviously Jesus himself was a victim of capital punishment. He was very out of step with the powerful. He was always on the side of the oppressed, those out of power. And so the idea that Christianity would be co-opted by a powerful state to be used whether it's the United States or Russia or some other, you know, country, any, any country, any government is by definition in power. And so to take Christianity, which is uh, a religion that is built on being set apart, I believe from the powerful from the state um, and to use that by the powers that be will corrupt Christianity. And we, we can also look to history to see how this has actually happened. You know, um, we don't
1: lack for examples in this regard, right?
2: (laughs) Absolutely. And I'd love to, you know, what comes to mind for me, of course, is how our sacred texts were used to justify slavery, were used to justify Jim Crow segregation, um, and up to the present day can be used by some to defend. Um, We saw in the last administration, scriptures used to defend uh, family separation policies at the border. Um, All kinds of examples of sacred texts, our sacred texts being used to justify a powerful state and the oppression of of people in ways that have um, twisted our theology and um, that have hurt our religion.
1: Yeah. I want to tease out one other thing that uh, you have said several times, or at least hinted at, when, when we talk about the separation of church and state, I think some people hear that as a separation of faith and public life. Mm-hmm. And those are not the same things, right? We, we can bring our faith to bear on the public arena without violating the separation of, of church and state. Uh, can you help people uh, navigate uh, that intersection?
2: Absolutely. I mean, I think where, when I talk about it, I often say the separation of the institutions of church and state, or right. um, even more inclusively the separation of the institutions of religion and government, mm-hmm. um, because we can hear some Christian nationalism language, even in saying church and state, right? Not right. everyone in this country worships in a church. Um, so we when we talk about the institutional separation, we're just saying government shouldn't try to do the job of religion. Religion shouldn't try to do the job of government. What that does not mean and cannot mean is a divorcement of religion from the public square. Mm-hmm. And we address this again in the Christians Against Christian Nationalism statement in the very first principle Um, of that statement, we say people of all faiths and none have the right and responsibility to engage constructively in the public square. So we're trying to rebut that misunderstanding right off the bat. Uh, I am really pleased that we included that as the very first principle in our statement because some of those who have detracted from our work have accused us of trying to silence them. Right. of trying to say, oh, you just don't want our perspective. We say, no, we just think that we should also hear from other perspectives, other Christian perspectives, other people, of different faiths, people who are agnostic or atheist or any, any kind of orientation toward religion. We all have a place in the public square. Um, what we don't want is the government taking sides or privileging Christianity or denigrating Christianity for that, right. for that matter that the government's job is to stay out of religious matters, and it's the job of religious people and other people, people who aren't religious, to engage in the public square.
1: Right. We want engagement. We don't want entanglement, right? That's yeah. That's the difference uh, that we would ask people to consider.
2: I think that's right. And we don't want um, to be asking the government to promote our religion for us.
1: Right. So, um, You do a lot of work in Washington and you show up uh, at the Capitol and the Supreme Court and all kinds of places. You also do work in churches. And I wonder if you might share some wisdom uh, at a congregational level about how we best catechize our people against Christian nationalism.
2: Well, I think it is vital that religious communities have conversations about Christian nationalism. One is just to start using the vocabulary of Christian nationalism. And that was one of the first goals of our project was to bring this term into some more popular usage, to define it, to give examples for us to be able to spot it. Um, You know, one example we haven't talked about yet is we've talked a lot about Christian nationalism in the broader culture outside of our congregations. I think it's important to have conversations about how Christian nationalism can show up in our congregations. Mm, yes. um, and when I do presentations on this topic, I often show a picture. Um, it's, very, it's usually the most provocative part of the presentation of uh, an altar that has a an American flag on one side and a Christian flag on the other side. And I think why this is so provocative is because in many sanctuaries around the country today, um, including in sanctuaries that are actively fighting against Christian nationalism in the broader culture, they have the American flag in their sanctuary. Mm-hmm. And my point of bringing this up is not to shame people not to say immediately take that flag out of the sanctuary, rather let's have a conversation about why is this flag in the sanctuary what la- what sim- what are you tr- what's the symbolism of this? Why is this important? Is Are we risking some kind of idolatry of our country in this way? Is this exclusionary in some way? Are we trying to say that God is on our side and not on the side of the other nations? What impact does this have on our theology, on our Christian witness, on our Christian walk? It's those kinds of conversations that I hope that our project prompts. And then I leave it to each congregation to decide for themselves, you know, how they handle that particular controversy or that particular question. And when I say I leave it to them, we do have resources to help congregations have these kinds of conversations. And uh, at the Christians Against Christian Nationalism website, which is ChristiansAgainstChristianNationalism.org, we have a whole list of resources that include some discussion guides, uh, one built around a podcast series that I hosted, another Uh, built around a webinar and some other resources that congregations can use to have these conversations with themselves. I think a big part of our project is we are not trying to point fingers at other people. We're not trying to say, oh, look at that Christian nationalist over there. We're trying to be really um, self-critical of of ourselves and to try to understand and see where Christian nationalism is popping up in our own lives, and our own communities. And to ask the question, how is this impacting both our uh, advocacy for our neighbors, our love of neighbor, you know, that Mm -hmm. commandment that Jesus gave us to love our neighbors ourselves. How is this impacting that part of our Christian walk? Uh, How is this at all interfering with our own understanding of of Christianity and what we're meant to be called to, what we are called to, um, and what are some ways that we might disentangle and ultimately dismantle Christian nationalism in -hmm. our own communities.
1: Yeah. Uh, And that's a conversation we've had at Second numerous times. We do not have a flag in our sanctuary.
2: I wasn't sure, you know, when I raised that topic, you never know, right? Right. And
1: um, many churches that I respect do have a flag in their sanctuary. So I recognize the, uh, the issue at hand there. For us, I find myself saying, here's what that doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that we don't care about our country. Sure. It does mean that if a flag as a symbol is in a place of worship that is highly symbolic, uh, with crosses and baptismal waters and bread and wine. What does that symbol have to do with the other symbols in that room? Uh, if it has nothing to say, then why is it in there? If it does have something to say, then what is it saying? Um, because I, I do think that f- flag speaks to people in sacred space. And that is of concern to me um, and and there may be a way to tease that out, in a, a discipling way. Here's what we are saying, but for us, it seems pretty clear that the God of all people and the God of all nations. Uh, if our focus is to be on that God, then what does a national symbol say about God? Uh, all of the rest of our symbols in the sanctuary speak to who our God is. What does a flag say about who our God is? Uh, and so that's how second has made peace of that uh, peace with that but i do think you know to your point before we talk about christian nationalism out in the world um, we should address it in our own pews and and how we're perpetuating that or not uh, in our our sunday after sunday worship
2: yeah and i think church is the perfect place to have these conversations because of the community of care that we've built the trust that we've built with each other with Right. Um. In, in church community, which is unique in our society, so if we can't have these conversations in our churches, then where can we have them? And right. um. And I, I think you know being generous with each other, being understanding, not pointing fingers, again, just questioning some of the assumptions, having the conversation, That's where we're really going to make progress on right. dismantling Christian nationalism
1: right uh we're both baptists and the first word in the baptist joint committee of religious liberty is baptist i I think many people are surprised to learn that in the early days of this country baptists were a religious minority and and experienced persecution as such only to become the largest protestant denomination in this country and um you know, your feelings about religious liberty can wax and wane, depending on your centrality in that culture. So can you give us just a brief thumbnail sketch of why religious liberty was and should be important to Baptist people?
2: Absolutely. And, um, you know, I think first, when we talk about Baptist, we, we talk about our theology mm-hmm. of freedom Right. That leads us to this, this idea that God created us free, free to say yes or no to God, and that faith is only authentic when freely chosen. Mm-hmm. And um, and that idea of soul freedom is so central to what it means to be a Baptist that it inspired the very first leaders of the Baptist movement to advocate for religious freedom and not just for themselves, but for others. Uh, Thomas right. Helles, who was one of the original Baptists, uh, wrote what is widely considered to be the first defense of universal religious freedom ever written in the English language. Right, um, and he uh, wrote that and sent an autographed copy to King James I, <laughs> and he was promptly imprisoned and died in that prison for right. that advocacy. And his advocacy again was not just for Baptists, but for Muslims for Jews, uh, for heretics, you know, for all these other groups. And um, so that history followed us, you know, to the early colonies, to Roger Williams, who founded the First Baptist Church in America, uh, to a number of other Baptist pastors, including Baptist pastors who influenced the framers of the First Amendment. Uh, John Leland uh, famously had a conversation with James Madison that helped influence the writing of the First Amendment, and it was out of our minority status, no doubt. The idea that of all the established religions in the colonies, none of them were Baptists. Um, okay. Baptists were on the outside looking in in all of those places. But I think even before our experience, it was our theology itself, right. and that grounding kept us, you know, for, for this, for these many centuries, and for these um, since then, and. When Baptists got into a majority position certain cultures, I think some have forgotten some of those foundational principles and have gotten too cozy with -hmm. the powers that be and the privilege of that. And it's important that uh, we remember the the theological reasons in addition to the practical reasons that we stand up for everyone's religious freedom.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a convictional freedom, not just a pragmatic freedom, um, that we want this for all people. That's you know? right.
2: And that's the, what inspires the work of BJC has inspired us. We're now in our 86th year as mm. an education and advocacy group. Uh, and it's what keeps us going. And, you know, most of the time we are advocating for people who aren't Baptists, um, because Baptists are in a privileged majority position in, in, this country so our advocacy is often for those who believe differently than we do yeah
1: so amanda you've talked about your grave concerns about christian nationalism and certainly january 6th will go down in the history books as one of the darkest days in our nation's history Uh, but i wonder as you look around today and do this work day after day where you see hope in regards to christian nationalism
2: I see a lot of signs for hope, and I see it in the way that people respond to the work that we're doing, um, both Mm -hmm. Christians and non-Christians. So first, you know, from the Christian perspective, we have seen a wonderful, warm response to Christians against Christian nationalism, Uh, learning that people in congregations are using our resources, are sharing them with others. That's what animates our work. And from non-Christians, I think uh, that this work that we're doing is a powerful witness to Mm. Christ's love for everyone, that we are standing up for Christian nationalism. And the, uh, for instance, I'll, you know, we've talked about January 6th, BJC partnered with the Freedom From Religion Foundation, which is Mm. a group of avowed atheists and others um, who uh, you know, also advocate for the separation of church and state, but from a non-religious angle and working with them and seeing the power of this report and what it meant to them to have this Baptist group standing with them to help put out this report. That's a hopeful sign for me Mm. as well.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your work. Uh, You're a treasured partner in uh, the work of Second Baptist Church and what we care about, you know, in a capital city, we care about um, faith in the public arena. And the BJC has been a guide for us, a source of great wisdom and encouragement. Uh, And I would encourage any listeners who want more information to uh, check out the website. We'll include that in the show notes. And certainly the resources that uh, the Baptist Joint Committee of Religious Liberty has produced on Christian nationalism. They're the best resources that I've found uh, to combat what is such a dangerous um, worldview and um, just posture of life. Uh, So take note of their resources and the work that they've done. And Amanda, we appreciate you and most certainly your time on the podcast today.
2: Well, thank you. And I'll say I've been watching from afar and the wonderful work that you're doing at Second Baptist and just applaud that work on the ground because that's how we're going to have change when it comes to Christian nationalism.
1: Mm, Thanks so much. As you go, go and love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Do so as if it's the most important thing in all the world because it is.
0: Thank you for listening to Because It Is. These are just some of the things that matter to us at Second Baptist Church downtown. If you enjoyed this conversation, please visit us online at 2BCLR.com. That's the number 2BCLR.com. And like us on Facebook. This podcast was produced by Brittany Stilwell and edited by Randy Schoenig with Fresh Air Media.